God is not fair. I know as a communicator, I'm supposed to, you know, build that up, but I thought we'd just go on and be honest about it, get it right on the table. God is not fair. I don't think fairness has ever actually been the issue. Uh, I, I serve as a new board member on a discipleship leadership organization in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I had to travel down there last week for my first board meeting. And, um, you know, I, I don't really get excited about board meetings, you know, but I found out where it was going to be located, and I found out it was going to be at this conference center, this retreat center, uh, south of Nashville that I've been to before, and I was really excited about it. It's a super great place. Uh, it's surrounded by woods and mountains and trails, and so that got me really excited about going. And then I checked in to the retreat center, and I got to my room and felt like immediately there had to be some mistake. Because I had the nicest room in the entire conference center. I mean, this thing was massive. And it had, like, there was, there was enough room for, like, 20 people to stay in there. And there was a big fireplace. And the bathroom itself was, like, bigger than my house. And there was a jacuzzi in the middle of it. And right outside the windows is just fall bursting all around me. And, and I remember just being overwhelmed. I, th- I thought, how did I get this place? And so I, I wanted to, uh, text my, one of our discipleship protégés, Emily Hendrickson, and, and le- just let her know, like, where I was staying and how cool it was. And so I kept trying to get a picture of it, but no, no angle in the room actually was able to capture how great it was. So I finally just texted her and I was like, you would not believe where I am. This is awesome. And, uh, and her text back to me was something along these lines that says, Heather, I'm so glad to hear that you deserve it. And the first thought I had, well, the first thought I had was brown noser. (laughs) And the second thought I had was, no, I don't deserve this. I'm the newest board member. I'm the youngest board member. I'm the board member with the least experience to bring to the table. I'm the board member that does not deserve this. And so, but I couldn't like figure out what to say back. So I just decided to be a little bit snarky. And I said, well, you know what? All I really deserve is death and hell. Everything else is grace. (laughs) And then I read it again. I was like, that's good theology. That is true. And I realize, you know what? Fairness has never been the issue. Thank God we don't have a fair God. Thank God that he is not fully fair, but he is full of grace. Because fairness and logic don't meet our deepest needs. Fairness and logic don't answer our most desperate questions. Fairness and logic don't meet us at the place of humanity's dilemma. Grace. We're in a series right now called Sola, where we're looking at the five solas of the Reformation, the five um, core beliefs that we embrace by scripture alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone. And next week we'll have um, glory to God alone. By grace alone, not fairness, by grace alone. Now, the interesting thing is that the church in 529 AD first affirmed the doctrine of sola gratia, this idea of salvation is found by grace alone. But over time, the church began to add things to that. 
began to say, you know, there's some ways that you can earn your salvation, whether it was Pope Urban II's uh, promise that if you went on crusade, you would have instant forgiveness, or Pope Leo X selling indulgences. Salvation became a commodity that could be bought and sold. And so people began to say, no, that's not what the scripture teaches. It's by grace alone. Now, let me give you a little bit of a window into my message preparation process. I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I there, there are two things that I look forward to every time I'm preparing a message. One is I look forward to going to the theological library. Just love it. And then I get sidetracked and start looking at all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the message. But love going to the theological library. The other thing I love doing is making the pilgrimage way out to the Lifeway store to pick up commentaries or books or anything that I think might help with the process. And so when I found out I was going to be teaching on the doctrine of by grace alone, I just nerded out. And so I pulled off the shelves all of my systematic theologies and all my Bible dictionaries and went to the Lifeway store and grabbed all kinds of commentaries off the shelf, even made the guy go look for one that I wanted to get and they didn't have on the shelf and he went to look for it and wanted me to order it and all this stuff. But I nerded out. And the crazy thing is, I realized that no Bible dictionary could adequately dissect and deliver a definition for grace. That commentaries couldn't really help me mind the depths of God's grace. That systematic theologies fell far short of helping me understand what grace is. And I realized that grace is better understood as story than as doctrine. That grace is one of those things that when we try to put parameters around it and define it and package it up and deliver it, that we lose something in the process. And what we realize is that grace is not something to be explained so much as it's something to be experienced. That grace was meant to be lived more than it was meant to be logically understood. We find grace when we find it in our stories. And so today, I'm going to go into story. And because Jesus is a far better storyteller than I am, I say we go with one of his stories. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn over to Matthew chapter 20. And uh, I'm going to give a little bit of background while you're turning over there. Uh, Jesus has just had a conversation with the rich young ruler who wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, sell everything that you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler turned around and and walked away. and, And Peter asked a question, Lord, we have given up everything to follow you. So what will we get? What's in it for us? What is due to us? And Jesus answers Peter by sharing this story. So in Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of an estate who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them that he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. At noon, and again around three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that evening, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The owner of the estate told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. 
when those hired earlier came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take it and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be angry because I am kind? Now, theologians talk and debate about what this story is really about. Is this about Gentiles who are coming into the kingdom of God after the Jewish people? Uh, Is it about different callings during different seasons in, in our lives? Is it about not being ticked about people who make deathbed conversions? There are a lot of theories about what this story is really about. But, I mean, come on, I think we know what this story is really about. This story is really about the fact that sometimes God does things that we perceive as being unfair, and that completely ticks us off. If we're really honest about this, it messes with us, because what happens when we read this story is we empathize with those people that turn out to be the bad guys in the story. We empathize with those people who are the ones that worked all day. We realize that we are like those dedicated workers that are so self-focused. We miss how awesome our boss really is. We're like the dutiful Esau who will trade the father's blessing for instantaneous gain. We're, We're like the dutiful older brother who flies off the handle when the prodigal son comes home. We're the Jonah who pouts when God's grace shows up to the Ninevites. We're the Pharisees who trade relationship for regulation. And Jesus tells this story about great grace and causes us to empathize with those who are in the wrong and then pulls the rug right out from under us. It's a story of grace. It's a story that exposes a God who is not fair and a God who is not logical to show us that fairness and logic don't solve the problems and don't answer the questions and don't meet us in our deepest dilemmas. It's a story about a God who is shockingly and unexpectedly unfair in order to deliver extravagant grace that is unearned, that is unmerited, that is unexpected. It's a story that Philip Yancey would describe as the scandalous mathematics of grace. There are a couple of things that we see in this story. One is that grace always initiates. I think it's interesting in this story that it's the landowner himself, the owner of the estate that goes to the market looking for people to work in his vineyard. He didn't send his foreman. He didn't send his servant. He himself went. And as we look at stories of grace in the Bible, which this story that Jesus tells is really just a snapshot of all the other stories of grace that are in Scripture, and all of Scripture itself is a story about grace. And in every story of grace, we find that God is the one who initiates, that grace is what initiates. I mean, if we go all the way back to the very beginnings Adam and Eve are in the garden and Adam and Eve have sinned and they're hiding from God and God comes into the garden and he comes to Adam with a question. And that first question is not, what did you do? It was, where are you? 
God's first question was not, what did you do and why did you do it? It was, where are you? Now, God knew the answer to both of those questions. But they both say very different things. Both of those questions expose very different desires. And God led with the question that exposed a desire for connection. Where are you? I want to come to you. Where are you? And that is the same question that God brings to you tonight. God's question for you this weekend is not, what did you do? It's, where are you? I mean, to go into the story even a little bit further, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see it as that symbol of obedience or disobedience. But the reality was it was really a symbol of trust. It was a symbol of relationship. The point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not God testing them to see if they would be obedient or not. Eve did not sin because she decided it was okay to disobey God. She sinned because she thought, maybe I can't fully trust God. God always leads with relationship. Where are you? Do you trust me? And then we fast forward a little bit and we get to the age of the patriarchs and God comes to this man by the name of Abram. Now Abram was plucked right out of a pagan, idol-worshiping family. And, And God told him, God comes to him with a promise. I am going to make you a great nation. This was a promise that Abram didn't ask for. Abram wasn't even seeking after God, but God was seeking after him. God initiated And then we fast forward a little bit more and we get to the point of the Exodus and the Ten Commandments are delivered. And I think it's interesting the way that the Ten Commandments start. The way that when we read the Ten Commandments in Exodus, it starts off this way. It says, um, for I am the Lord your God. See, the Israelites had been living in a land where there were lots and lots of gods, some of them inanimate, all of them impersonal. And so God, before giving the rules, establishes the relationship. I am the Lord, not I'm the Lord, the God. I am the Lord, your God. This is personal. He established relationship before he delivered rules. And then we get into the story of the conquest and the era of the judges and we find that the Israelites are going into the promised land and spies are sent into the city of Jericho and this woman named Rahab, who was a prostitute, ran a brothel on the walls of Jericho, hid the spies. And the deal that they worked out was that if she hid the spies, and what she says is she says, I know that your God is bigger than all other gods. She made that simple declaration. I know that your God is bigger. And she hid the spies, and in return for that, she was granted safety. Anybody that was inside her house would be spared. What's interesting to me about this story is that Rahab was never asked to change her identity or change her line of work. Like, this is coming from a people who have just been delivered the Ten Commandments with very clear stipulations about sexual purity. And to Rahab, they say, you have declared that God is greater and you've extended a hand of hospitality to his people. And so therefore, if you hang the scarlet cord in your window, everyone in your house will be saved. See, Rahab didn't have to change who she was to receive grace. But eventually, grace changed who she was. 
We know this because as we read the story, we read that Rahab was still living amongst the Israelites till that day, meaning that when the story was written, she was still living among them. She'd become one of them. Her identity had shifted to become like them. And then we read that she marries a man, and eventually they become the parents of Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth, and they become the grandparents of King David. Grace changed who she was. God always initiates. And then we get to the time of the kings and we have David. Now, David is celebrated as this great man, but if we want to talk about some really, really nasty, evil sinners, like, does it get any worse than sleeping with a man's wife and then murdering him to cover up the sin? I mean, that's really, really bad, bad stuff. And yet God extended grace. If we go all the way back to David's um, rise to the kingship, like Samuel the prophet comes to the house of Jesse and says, bring me all your boys because God wants to anoint a new king out of this house. And so Jesse gathers up all of his boys except for David. He didn't even think David was fit. So David is left out in the field. And then Samuel's got to feel a little foolish when he gets to the end of the line and realizes, I, I don't know who it is. It's not any of these guys. And so Jesse eventually brings David in and David comes in and immediately he is anointed the next king of Israel, not because of something he had done. It was grace. Grace initiated. Even his own dad didn't see potential in him. Grace always initiates. And then David is told that the Messiah will come through his line. And then we get to the time of the prophets and we see guys like Jonah And God has amazing, amazing grace to pour out on people that were the enemies of the people of God. And then we shift to the New Testament. We see guys like Matthew. It is no wonder that Matthew included this story in his gospel because he had been on the front lines of receiving the grace-initiating moves of Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector. Basically, he had teamed up with the Roman government. He was considered to be a traitor to his own people. He was stealing from his own people. He was using his ties with the Roman government to harm his own people. And so he was rejected. People didn't even want to talk to Matthew. And so Jesus, this respected religious man, this teacher, this rabbi, goes to talk to Matthew, and not only to talk to him, but to say, follow me. Jesus initiated with an invitation to relationship. And then we see Jesus doing really scandalous stuff like talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. Jews and Samaritans didn't talk to one another. And Jewish men certainly didn't talk to Samaritan women. And yet at the well, Jesus leads with a question. Can you give me some water? And that leads to more questions, which lead to more questions. And when the questions got a little too close to home for the woman, she began to talk theology. So it's always easier for us to talk about theology than talk about our pain. Because theology can just kind of leave it out here. But Jesus kept asking questions that drove it deeper and deeper into her heart. And eventually grace grabbed her. See, in, in every one of these stories, we find that God initiates, that God leads with a promise, like a promise to Abraham, with a question, like a question to the to the Samaritan woman at the well, with an invitation to relationship like he did with Matthew, with a declaration of who someone really is like he did with David. God always leads. Grace always initiates. And our decision is how we're going to respond. 
He initiates with promises, with questions, with declarations, with invitations to friendship, with invitations to relationship. Because what grace is really about is about relationship, not religion. Grace initiates. Grace also often frustrates. Because as we see in this story, grace is not always logical. Grace can't always be understood. But grace isn't something to be explained. It's something to be experienced. It's not something to be logically understood. It's something to be lived. Okay, back to this story. So I want you to just kind of put yourself in the shoes of one of the guys that has been working since six in the morning. You've been out harvesting grapes all day. This is hard work and scorching heat and you've been working for 12 hours and all day long other guys have been coming to help with the work process but you've been working all day and you're tired you're ready to go home and it comes time for you to be paid and mosaic law like stipulated that that those who worked in these environments had to be paid at the end of each day and so the owner tells the foreman to line everybody up So you're ready to get lined up, only you're told that you're going to be lined up in reverse order of when you started. So you're at the end of the line while everybody that came just an hour ago is at the front of the line. And the first thing you're thinking is, hey, at least we could have been in the front of the line so we could go on and get home. We're tired, our feet hurt, we're sore all over, and now we've got to stand in this line before we get paid. But then hope begins to rise when you realize that the guy in the front of the line who's only been working for an hour has been paid a full denarius, a full day's wage. That's what you were promised. He's only been working an hour. And so you start to do the math and you're thinking, wow, that's for one hour, one day's wage for one hour. I've been working 12 hours. I got 12 days worth of wages coming to me. And, And then you start thinking, well, this is obviously a very generous, gracious, beneficial, like, boss, this is awesome. And so you start thinking, maybe we even get some bonuses. Like, maybe I can get an early signing bonus because I was here at the very beginning of the day. Maybe, maybe I'll get a bonus for bringing in the most grapes over the course of the day. I mean, all of a sudden, this boss who's lined up in reverse order, you're not so sad anymore because you realize that you've got something big coming. Until you get to the front of the line, And the foreman drops in your hand one denarius. First you think, well, maybe there was a mistake. I mean, I I know this is what was promised, but but he does know I was one of the guys that has been here all day, right? And then you begin to compare with the other people that have been there for 12 hours, and you realize that all of them are saying the same thing. No, we we got paid the same thing. (laughs) You begin to grumble, and you begin to wonder, well, this isn't fair. This isn't logical. This doesn't make sense. I've been working for 12 hours. I should be getting more. I am due more. There is more that should come to me. And the landowner catches wind of what's being discussed. And he said, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take it and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be angry because... I am kind. Should you be angry because I am kind? Another translation says, do you begrudge my generosity? See, we've been trained from a very early age to operate according to the merit system. You poop in the potty, you get a goldfish cracker. (laughs) You know, 
you get enough A's and you get a certain number of tokens at Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, look, I, I grew up, I got five tokens at Chuck E. Cheese for every A I got on my report card. And when you're a nerd as big as I am, that's a lot of skee-ball. <laughs> you know, you make, you make certain grades and you get into better schools and you do better on your SATs and you get better scholarships and you uh, work harder at your job and you get raises and promotions and bonuses. We're trained to operate according to the merit system and that's why stories of grace are so shocking to us. Why they're scandalous to us. Why we get very uncomfortable with stories of grace because we're focused on what is due us. So we we fail to realize how awesome this was for the people that had only been working an hour. And like Esau and the elder brother with the prodigal son and the Pharisees, we don't even see the blessing that we've had because we're worried about what God is doing for somebody else. We miss how gracious he is. And I think another thing that happens is that some of us get the idea that salvation is by grace alone. Like we've bought into that, we've embraced it, we believe, yes, there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. I can't work for my salvation. But then what we do is we shift gears somehow and we fail to realize that we're not only saved by grace, we're also sustained by grace. See, something happens where we're like, well, yeah, I know my salvation, my eternal security, my ticket into heaven is tied up in this idea of grace. But then when it comes to our day-to-day living, we are still trying to earn God's favor. We still think that we can do things to earn God's blessing. We still think that we can do things to get God's attention. I mean, we do this by saying things like, you know, I've been loyal to my boss and I have worked my job with integrity. So why did that other person get the promotion and not me? We demonstrate this when we say, well, I've tithed, so why am I not doing better financially than that person over there? When we say, I've kept myself pure, why has God not brought me a spouse? We say, you know, I agreed to chase this crazy calling that I think God has had on my life, and things are terrible in my life right now. Why can't God just make this a little bit easier? When we say things like, okay, God, I know I didn't study for this test, but but I did go to church. So for promise never to do it again. I prayed that prayer so many times. We bargain with God. We try to say, look, here is, here is our good work. Here is our merit. This is why you should do this for us. Yeah, I know I'm saved by grace alone, but I think I'm sustained by something different. And because I've done all these good works, why don't you reward that? And, and so like Peter, we're asking these questions of what's in it for us? What is fair? What are you going to do for me? What is my due and when am I going to get it? And the problem is that Romans 6.23 tells us what's due us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul said, Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for salvation. It is too difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We want to earn our way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. 
For us, it's just logical to earn it, that we can do something to gain God's favor, that if we just do enough good works, we'll get God's attention and we'll get God's favor and we'll earn our way into heaven. The problem is that Isaiah 64, 6 tells us just how good our good works are. Isaiah 64, 6 says, um, says, we're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Now, let me tell you how filthy these filthy rags are. The phrase that is used here is the same phrase that's used to describe the rags that women would sit on when they were in their monthly cycle. I mean, if we want to put this in modern vernacular, what the scripture is saying here is let's talk about your good deeds. Let's talk about your righteousness. They're about as good as a used tampon. Your best works on your best day are that good. Congratulations. Is that really what you want to bring to the table when God looks at you? It's nothing but filthy rags. There is nothing we can do to earn it. It's God's grace. God initiates a gift. It's unearned. It's unmerited. It's illogical. Maybe it's unfair. But it's a gift of grace. Grace always initiates. Grace often frustrates. I love the way that Matthew opened his gospel. So Matthew's a guy that's, you know, got his life changed by the grace of Jesus. And then he includes this story about grace. And then if we go all the way back to the beginning of his book, he opens his book in a very interesting way. It's like just names. There's lots of names. Now, this is a curious way to start your book. I mean, how many of us actually read like the acknowledgments in the front of a book? I mean, maybe we'll read them if we know the author or we're curious. Or if we really know the author really well, then we look to see if our name is in there. <laughs> but, I mean, who really reads the acknowledgment section? And this isn't even his acknowledgment section. This is like chapter one. Name after name after name after name. And what scholars will tell us are a couple of things. One is that because Matthew was writing for a predominantly Jewish audience, he was establishing that Jesus was Jewish because um, the Messiah would be Jewish. And so establishing that Jesus had Jewish roots, but also to establish that Jesus came came from a kingly line. Uh, so he came from the tribe of Judah. He came from the, tri- the, the same line as David. So Jesus is Jewish and he's a king and that establishes him as Messiah potential. But then Matthew does some really curious, like if that's all he was trying to do, then he did a few things that are a little odd because he threw in some of the, like Jewish genealogies never included everybody. You only included the good people. But he included some of the bad eggs. He included some of the people that you want to kind of just forget are in your family tree. He also included women, which was unheard of at the time. And so what we see in the book of Matthew, even in the list of names, is the story of God's grace. I mean, it begins with Abraham, the guy that received a promise he didn't ask for, didn't even know to look for. Abram was not looking for God. God was looking for him. 
And then we go along in this to read about guys like Judah. I didn't even talk about Judah earlier. Judah was bad dude. Judah sold his brother into slavery and then later in life knocked up his daughter-in-law and then brought her out to be punished only to discover that, oops, I'm the dad. And then Judah is the one that's chosen to be the line through which the kings of Israel come and who the Messiah would come. It's the grace of God. He did nothing to deserve that. God chose him to be a part of this family. And then we see names in here like Ruth. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. Rahab wasn't an Israelite either, and she was a prostitute. David is listed in here. I mean, David, not, not good decisions. And this is the family through which God sends his son. So I think what Matthew's doing in here is Matthew's like, yeah, he's Jewish. Yeah, he's a king. But you know what? This is a screwed up family. And I can see myself in this family. And we can too. This is the family that God chose to send Jesus through. They didn't do anything to earn that. They didn't do anything to merit that. It is grace and grace alone. Unfair, illogical. It's God's grace. I think some of us have tried so hard to earn God's favor, to get God's attention. We've just tried so hard to to work out something that makes us pleasing and appeasing to God. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Solus Christus, that it's by Christ alone, that you don't need to do anything else. You don't need anyone else. You don't need to experience anything else. It's just Christ. And then last week, Pastor Mark talked about sola fide, that salvation comes by grace through faith alone. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took on all of the wrath and made the sacrifice for us. We don't need to do anything else. There's nothing else we can do. There's nothing else to do except do what Rahab did and take that and hold on to it and put it over the windows of our hearts and say, I'm going to hold on to this and let grace change us. Not change ourselves to receive grace, but let grace change us. The gospel is that we do not have to appease the wrath of God because Jesus already did it. The gospel is that we don't have to sacrifice anything because Jesus already did it. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith. So where does that leave us? Well, some of us really just still want a definition. What is Grace. And the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, I think Philip Yancey sums it up pretty well. He says, grace tells us that there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. And grace tells us there is nothing we can do to make God love us any less. Now, some of you theological nerds are really, really wishing that I had just decided to dive into the technicalities and the nuances of common grace and free grace and provenient grace and irresistible grace. That's great. We can do that in Theology 101. Some are asking the but what about questions. But what about bad habits? 
but what about the commands? But what about growing in Christ's likeness? What about obedience? Those are all good questions. Those are just entirely different messages. So I've intentionally avoided them because those are not messages about grace. They're messages about something that is related to grace, something that's connected to grace, but is not grace. We do those things not to get grace, but because we have been granted grace. It's by grace alone. It's not even by understanding why it's grace. It's not even about understanding what grace is. This isn't about being able to define it or put it in a box or completely understand it. The point is that it is just by grace alone. So what do we do? Grace always initiates. God always makes the first move. And the ultimate move was the checkmate of the cross. God has made a move in your life. How do you respond? Grace also often frustrates. It's not logical. It's not fair. Thank God it is not fair. Are you okay with that? God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it is by grace alone that we don't have to do anything else, that we don't have to experience anything else. God, that we don't have to scrounge up all of our righteousness and come to you with a pile of filthy rags and say, this is the best we can do. We thank you that we can respond to your grace, that we can stand underneath the blood of the cross, that we can put ourselves underneath the sacrifice of Christ. God, thank you that we don't have to change ourselves to receive grace, but that we realize that grace will ultimately eventually change us. God, thank you that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. And may we continue to live in such a way that we're not only saved by grace, but we are sustained by grace. And God, that that understanding would lead us to a place of gratitude and cause us to extend mercy and grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.